It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. So I cook most of the dinners at my house, and I was getting ready to cook one of our favorite kind of quick, easy dinners, which is a lovely shakshuka. It's like a spicy tomato sauce with eggs cooked on top of you with bread. So my wife very kindly offered during her lunch break to kind of help me prep by kind of sous chefing a bit and doing some dicing and cutting before I got home from the office. Uh, and I had asked her to cut up a couple of hot peppers that I had sliced into like kind of quarters and shoved in our freezer, neglecting the fact that there were in fact two sacks of peppers in our freezer, one of which was bell peppers, the other of which were uh, mystery uh, peppers I had grown in my garden <laughs> that I had yet to identify. Oh, no. <laughs> my wife unknowingly diced up the ladder and produced the spiciest shakshuka I have ever had in my entire life, like nuclear hot, that we then accidentally fed to my son. He's okay. <laughs> but he quickly learned us how spicy it was. Did he turn bright red? I don't even think it touched his tongue. And it was like watered down with like a ton of love now we like mixed in there to make it like super mild. It barely touched his tongue. And he, tongue, he spit it at us. I was like, too hot, <laughs> accusatorily, as if to say, you did this to me. You did do this to him. This is the thing about toddlers, right? Is like their, they, their ability to look at you and just... Like, you know, their eyes say, like, I love you and you let this happen to me. It's, it's such a strong, it's such a strong it's such a thing. strong instinct. It's such a strong instinct. And then, like, my poor wife, her fingers were so spicy for, like, 24 hours. She, till this morning, she said they still burned a little bit. Last night, she couldn't sleep because her hands were so burning from these oh, no. weird mystery peppers I accidentally grew in my backyard over the summer. Scott, you didn't label them? I was never able to identify them. They're very weird looking peppers. But- but why did you label them as mystery peppers so that your wife wouldn't use them? Wait, I have questions about how they are mystery peppers. Did they just appear, like sprout out of your soil, or did you plant something? Because usually, if you did plant you buy something... them from from a mysterious old man in exchange for a cow? <laughs> yes, exactly right. I threw them in my backyard, well, in my later hosen, waiting for them to grow so I could mount the resulting vine. No, you know. The thing I've learned from my one or year as a gardener, as a hobby gardener, is that uh, seed stores and garden shops are like not super reliable on their labeling. So they send That's you true. what is very clearly a pepper plant that has like 10 leaves and another thing on it. And they say, oh, this is a jalapeno plant. And then the things that grow out of it are decidedly not jalapenos. And that happened with most of the peppers I had. Uh, I discovered some later were like a type of habanero I'd never seen before that looked like shishito peppers, but had the heat of habaneros. I look forward to uh, when you tell the nice officer from the DEA that, oh, no, my just seeds were on, were mislabeled from the uh, seed store. See how that goes. That actually did happen to me. I bought some kale seeds that turned out to be tomatillo. I thought you were going to say kale seeds that turned out to be marijuana. No, sorry. Sorry to disappoint. <laughs> the wildest salad you've ever had. <laughs> it got crazy. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Rational Security. I am one of your co-hosts, Scott R. Anderson. I am here with my two other regular co-hosts, Quinta Jurassic. Hello. And Alan Rosenstein. Hello, hello. 
And we are thrilled to be joined once again by one of our absolute favorite frequent guests, Lawfare Executive Editor Natalie Orpit. Natalie, thank you for joining us here today. Hello, friends. Thanks for having me. Well, Natalie, we are thrilled to have you back uh, with us this week because we have had a lot of things going right and going mostly wrong in the national security space this week for what we are calling the Key West versus West Bank edition, as it is a tight race between the two Wests for which one is making at least me more depressed over the past week. For our first topic this week, low confidence games. A Department of Energy intelligence report concluded with low confidence that COVID-19 may have begun with a lab leak in Wuhan, China, further fracturing views within the U.S. government and giving added fuel to those seeking to put blame for the pandemic on China. What should we make of this report and the strong reactions to it? Topic two, it's coming from inside the cabinet. The West Bank and Israel appear to be in the midst of another spiral of violence. Most recently, the shooting of two Israeli settlers by a Palestinian led to a riot through a number of Palestinian towns that killed one resident and damaged hundreds of homes and cars. Even more recently, a U.S. citizen was killed in yet another shooting just in the last 24 or 48 hours. What explains the surge in violence, and is the new Israeli government headed by Bibi Netanyahu to blame or up to the challenge of addressing it? And topic three, Talanasty. At the prompting of Governor Ron DeSantis, a likely candidate for the 2024 Republican presidential nomination, Florida's state legislature is enacting a wave of culture war measures, targeting everything from school libraries to Disney. What does this all mean for democratic governance in the state of Florida, and what could it mean for the rest of the country come 2024? For our first topic, Quinta, I'm going to hand it over to you to get us started. All right. So the Wall Street Journal reported earlier this week that the Energy Department has determined that the likely origin of the COVID pandemic was from a lab leak. Now, that is more or less what the headlines about this say. What you did not hear and what I just said and what is not in the headlines is that uh, the Energy Department determined this with low confidence, which is intelligence community speak for we don't really know. Um, I'm not sure where I would put that on like a percentage scale, but they're not totally certain about this. Nevertheless, and despite a report that came out from the Office of the Director of National Intelligence in, in 2021, that most of the intelligence community either believed with low confidence that the origin of the pandemic was zoonotic or they just couldn't decide. Uh, this has led to yet another wave of speculation and argumentation about the lab leak issue. I think you can tell from my framing that I uh, am a bit skeptical of this whole discourse, uh, but I know Alan feels otherwise. So Alan, let me turn it over to you and then I will explain why you're wrong. <laughs> Nice. What a, what an invitation, Quinta. Well, so look, I, I think there are lots of threads of this, and I totally agree with you to the extent that you're rolling your eyes that people don't understand how intelligence assessment work, and everyone focuses only on the top line, more likely than not that it was a lab leak, and not on the confidence with which that intelligence assessment was made. Because I think you're exactly right to say, look, this is still low confidence. And frankly, we're almost certain to never know what actually caused COVID-19 because it's sort of hard to know in general. And frankly, we're not getting any more cooperation from the Chinese. And the Chinese certainly will never admit that this was a lab leak, even if it was. And again, it might not have been, right? This could have been uh, zoonotic. But I do think this story is worth taking seriously for 
I think at least three reasons. So the first is that if it was in fact a lab leak and not zoonotic transmission, I think that requires us as good Bayesian updaters to update our uh, risk assessment on you know, so-called gain-of-function research, which is to say when uh, scientists research viruses and in particular try to potentially intentionally make them more contagious or more deadly in order to better fight those viruses in the future. And, you know, that w- whether that kind of research is good or bad uh, it depends, of course, in part on the risk of those viruses getting out of these facilities in which they are in. And if, in fact, we find out that this virus did, in fact, escape the Wuhan Institute of Virology and cause a global pandemic, well, we should update our sense of the risk accordingly. Now, that doesn't mean, I'm going to be very clear, but that doesn't mean that, therefore, we shouldn't do any of this kind of research. But you know, this is how we uh, gain knowledge about risks, is we have to get an understanding of the you know base rate, basically. And this is directly relevant to that. So that's, I think, the first reason this matters. The second reason this matters is because if, in fact, the the virus came out of a lab and was not a result of zoonotic transmission, then the Chinese have been lying about this systematically for several years now, and that's bad. And also, the Chinese have managed to avoid what should be an enormous reputational damage to them, which is that their actions caused COVID-19, right, even if unintentionally. And in a world in which there is a great power rivalry uh, between, you know, liberal democracies and China, if we have some ammunition to take Chinese reputation down a peg globally um, and show that even this or to show that this authoritarian system maybe isn't quite as competent as once promised, I think that's important as well. And then the third reason is, you know, as a matter of kind of domestic media criticism and domestic criticism of, of the language and sort of sociology of science, um, you know, at the beginning of COVID-19, when it was being debated whether or not this was zoonotic uh, or this was lab leak, the conversation got very polarized very quickly. And in particular, anyone advancing the lab leak hypothesis was viewed as sort of conspiratorial at best and racist anti-Chinese at worst, which doesn't actually make a lot of sense when you consider that it's no more insulting to the Chinese as a people to say this was a lab leak than it was the result of zoonotic transmission and wet markets. And yet, for some reason, um, a lot of folks in the media and in the scientific establishment decided that you know saying this was the fault of the Chinese scientific establishment was somehow uh, was somehow a racist thing. And so, I think that that was an unfortunate politicization. Um, of course, plenty of people arguing. Uh, the lab leak hypothesis were themselves arguing in bad faith and may have had racist anti-Chinese intentions behind that. But I think what this shows is yet again that the discourse around science, including from the quote-unquote pro-science portions of the commentariat, are, are not particularly healthy in the United States because now several times things that have been considered verboten turn out to have much more plausible basis for them and I think should make us be more humble uh, with what we decide to rule out of bounds when we're debating these difficult issues. Yeah, I'll just jump in to say, I think in my view of the three points that you made, it is certainly the case to me that learning about the origin of this pandemic to the extent it is useful for developing the science and um, helping scientists and those who are knowledgeable in related fields to 
better prepare or prevent future pandemics, prepare for fighting future pandemics, I should say, is really, really important. That That is a compelling reason to me. The discourse generally, especially to the extent it's happening in the public as a reaction to intelligence community assessments that are both in low confidence and based on information that will never be available to the public, it doesn't strike me as, I, I guess my my thinking is to what end, right? Uh, Alan, you mentioned the, the polarization and the sort of politicization of science that happened during the pandemic in terms of how people were responding to it and whether you were pro-vaccine or anti-vaccine, pro-lockdown or anti-lockdown, and you looked for reasons to bolster your view. You know, to the extent that people are still looking for answers to continue that sort of rhetorical debate, I just don't see the usefulness of it. And it seems to sort of perpetuate the problem of trying to claim science as being on my side with everyone having decided to become an armchair epidemiologist during the pandemic with actually most of us having no idea what we're talking about. And if the if the purpose from some corners is in what way can we better blame China and hold it accountable, I don't find that particularly compelling either, in part because there's such a deficit of information and in part because I just don't know to what end that is important. I think the it happened, you know, I think there is consensus that China is geographically the origin point. And then from there, different people will have different assessments of the extent to which the Chinese government's policies um, or potential uh, lack of transparency or whatever are to blame for the spread. But the fact of the matter is, you know, if you listen to scientists, like pandemics happen sometimes. And does it matter what the origin was in terms of the fact that it spread globally and killed millions and millions of people? Like, I guess if it was a lab leak and it were possible to control always for lab leaks and there were some way as a policy matter going forward that if the United States determined that it was a lab leak, then the United States would be able to somehow get China to better implement controls over its labs. I mean, all of that just seems very far-fetched to me. So I think there is some cost to perpetuating the continued politicization and polarization around the pandemic um, if this continues to be such a focal point. And I'm not sure how much of a benefit we get out of it other than, as I said at the beginning, to, to the development of science to better prepare for them in the future. Yeah, I agree with Natalie. I think the reason why I'm pretty skeptical of this whole discourse is because it's not obvious to me that doing the things that we would do if either a lab leak or a zoonotic origin were confirmed is dependent on finding that information. And what I mean by that is, okay, so if it turned out that it was a lab leak, then maybe we should figure out ways to make virology research safer and more secure to ensure that that doesn't happen in the future. If it is a matter of zoonotic origin, then I think there's a question of, okay, how do we prevent you know, the sale of wild animals? How do we make sure that we're not disturbing habitats in remote regions? Although that's probably, I think the, the ship has probably sailed on that one. But the thing is that like, we can and should do both of those things anyway. If the the intelligence community, which has the most information about this, 
I mean, is kind of everybody except the FBI. I don't know what secret information the FBI has that nobody else has, but everyone except the FBI has low confidence on this matter. A lot of the agencies in the intelligence community cannot make up their minds. That suggests to me that, you know, whether you come down as 45%, it was zoonotic or 55% zoonotic, you should be you know, thinking about safety standards that would derive from a zoonotic origin or a lab leak. And I just don't, it, the, the fact that people are so hung up on finding answers to this question when it seems like we're never really going to know, I find very puzzling, except that it is a useful tool for demagoguery and frankly, xenophobia. So that is one thing. I mean, the other thing is also, you know, when it comes to the reputation of the Chinese government, which I do think it's just important to distinguish from the Chinese people here, I think it's kind of sunk already. <laughs> I mean, as Natalie said, the virus came out of China. The government failed to contain it. They lied about it initially. They failed to collect data on it such that uh, the the question of the virus's origins are probably never going to be able to be definitively determined at this point. And, you know, they went around trumpeting zero COVID for a few years, and we just saw a pretty humiliating 180 that the Chinese government did, um, saying no zero COVID anymore, just let it rip and letting a huge amount of people die. So even if the origin is zoonotic, like they have not handled this particularly well. And I don't totally see how you know, discovering somehow with, you know, 75% certainty that it was a lab leak would damage Beijing's reputation any more than it has already been damaged. Yeah, you know, I, I generally agree with that, um, you know, but I do want to maybe give, throw throw a line of, of support in Alan's direction about the reason why. <laughs> that's very, that's very kind of you, Scott. I try. I try. I think, I think, you, I, I think I'm, you're all nuts. I'm obviously right. Well, let me let me let me. That's that's your usual posture in this in this podcast. Let's, let's, let's <laughs> that try. is that is that's all. That's each of our usual posture. Let's be let's be real. It's basically every segment. You know, obviously, a I think we can agree. I think there's a f- totally fair thing to report for the media, right? It's a change of a material fact of an assessment that you know is a notable change. It's notable enough to report to Congress. It was the thing that got flagged, really the only thing that's different in this update that was provided to Congress. I don't know whether there's pursuing to statutory authors requirement or a voluntary step taken here. But I do think that's notable enough, right? I think it's also at the same time very fair to say, well, it's not whether this fact was reported, it's the way it's reported being hyped up, right? Is this the sort of thing that warrants a Wall Street Journal push notification? Which I can't recall whether I got because I don't think I get Wall Street Journal pushing out notifications, but perhaps some people did, or at the level of hype that it's getting. And it quite obviously seems that it is is not really warranted of that because it's actually quite a small change from the original assessment. A notable one, a substantive one, you know, material one, but you know, substantial, significant, worthy of a front page headline. I highly doubt that, especially with the low confidence kind of caveat there. Uh, and really, what this comes down to is the really tricky cultural divide around this issue that this is entering into, which is that there has been a bit of an overhyped element of people saying, oh, this is a lab leak. And this goes throws some fuel in that direction. But it's worth noting the FBI already had, with moderate confidence, I guess, reached the same conclusion. Several other intelligence agencies couldn't rule it out. And four did rule it out and said, well, we think it's more likely that it was a you know natural transmission. 
long story short, it's a very mixed picture factually. We don't really know what the ultimate picture is. And that kind of cuts both directions. It's a point against people who are trying to hype this up and say, well, obviously, this is somehow a sign of Chinese irresponsibility. Uh, And I don't think, you know, great power struggle is a reason to start misrepresenting the facts. I don't think that's what you're advocating, Alan, but I don't, I think that alone, you know, it's only a fair reason to maybe point out genuine concerns with what China's doing. And on the flip side of that, it's also a point saying, well, we haven't conclusively ruled out this possibility either. So if we're just going to say, no, this isn't even something worth considering or discussing, that's a problem in of itself. I think there's fair concerns to say this shouldn't be a base basis for hate speech. It's contributing to some negative things, but you know, it's a hard balance to strike always to say, well, does that mean we can't even talk about it or acknowledge this as a possibility? I don't think people are advocating that. But, you know, at the same time, we do have to acknowledge it and get to a factual kind of understanding here. I'm certainly not arguing that the press shouldn't report on it. It certainly, you know, if there's developments on it, then sure, report on it. I think it's a question of reporting on it responsibly, as you say. And we know at this point that most people never look beyond the headline. Maybe the headline should have said low confidence. That's fair. And it's worth noting, a lot of publications did note low confidence. Wall Street Journal didn't, who kind of broke the story, right? It's in the piece, wasn't in the headline. And it's also worth noting, I think most people probably know this, but the journalists who wrote the piece who are a reputable set of journalists don't write the headline usually, right? That's a Wall Street Journal kind of editorial decision, most likely. The point I really want to get at here is that there is a point of consensus here that's more important on all of this, which is that there's just fundamentally a lack of transparency on the part of the government of China, and that is genuinely a real problem. Agreed, it may not make monumental shifts. We should be preparing for you know all possible contingencies for how to deal with this sort of release, but you know knowing the way it was released actually might have real differences. Like maybe there are deficiencies in China's internal handling of certain viruses in ways that, for instance, aren't evident to scientific partners from other parts of the world, right? That may say, well, until you correct these things, maybe we shouldn't be engaging with you on different types of virology research or other types of research, right? There's like a lot of much more material things that that could come into play here that would be easier to address and each at least be aware of with a better factual grasp of the situation. And we don't have a very good factual grasp of that. That's really the key takeaway point from this assessment, which has been the same since 2020, right? And it's a recurring problem because in this post-zero COVID moment, we, for instance, have no idea what the fatalities level is in China of the fact that they've 180 on their COVID policy. Their official statements are they're just having tens of thousands of casualties, Whereas a lot of experts are saying, no, it's more likely in the millions at this point. Like it kind of has to be if they're having patterns, anything like there are other countries in the world. And so that really is a recurring policy problem with real consequences for the rest of the world. I think that's a very fair point to hammer home with this story, one that probably people on both sides of the culture debate can get on board with. So I, I appreciate the uh, I appreciate the lifeline, Scott. Um, I will I will incorporate it into my rebuttal. So I, I, I want to try to avoid turning this into what? you know, too many podcasts with very online hosts do, which is turn everything into a media criticism story. I am happy to concede that any report of this that did not highlight the low confidence was journalistic malpractice. Totally agreed. But uh, I, I do get the sense from Quinta and Natalie that there's just kind of more of a general skepticism than just that about whether this story is really worth a lot of attention. And, and I really want to push back on that for a couple of reasons. You know, first, I think that it is just a natural human tendency to want to know what happened like to want to know the truth. And that is a good human tendency. And when that human tendency is directed at, you know, an event of world historical magnitude, like it will go down as one of the key hinge points in the you know, 21st century, I think it's uh, totally fair 
to just want to know the answer just because it's, you know, we want to know everything about this event that changed all of our, um, all of our lives. And to Scott's point, I do think it actually has implications. One danger of saying, well, this doesn't really matter that much because the Chinese will never tell us anything at the end of the day. It's a bit self-perpetuating because, of course, if we give up on trying to figure it out, that the Chinese will bear a lower cost for stonewalling. So I do think it's important to keep the, 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 the pressure on. But I think what my kind of biggest issue with the let's not spend too much time you know, talking about this because it could you know, fuel anti-Chinese sentiment is, first of all, I'm just very, very uncomfortable with backing off from factual inquiries because of concern about how that might be used. Not to deny that it could be used for some very ugly xenophobia and has been used. But I just, I think a society that's committed to open inquiry just has to bracket those concerns almost always. Otherwise, you just go down a bad place. And even if we weren't going to bracket those concerns, I'm still not convinced why the lab leak is more, quote unquote, anti-China than the zoonotic hypothesis, right? With the lab leak, you are identifying a thing that the Chinese government did incompetently. And so you can say the Chinese government did it. With the zoonotic hypothesis, you know, especially one related to the wet markets, right, which is what the zoonotic hypothesis fundamentally was, there's a much bigger danger of implicitly criticizing a culture of a people. And so I just, I've never understood the argument that there's something about the lab leak that is particularly dangerous as a font of as a font of hate speech, um, again, putting to aside the question of whether or not those concerns should affect how committed we are to finding all the details about this important issue, if we can. I'll just say really quickly that I do very much agree, Alan, with your point that this is a natural and I think good aspect of human nature that people will always want to understand what happened. So I will end on a peacemaking note. I, I appreciate, I appreciate that, Natalie. Um, and thank you for the segue, because of course we can go from naturally good instincts of humans and peacemaking to naturally bad instincts of humans and war making or violence making, uh, as it were. So yeah, Scott mentioned at the top there's been some really, really ugly violence happening in in Israel and and the occupied territories. Um, so two Israelis were killed by Palestinian gunmen uh, over the weekend, and in response, a mob of over 400 Israeli settlers rampaged through uh, a bunch of Palestinian villages, including the village of Hawara, injuring Palestinians, uh, burning you know hundreds of cars and, and houses. Now, this violence is bad enough um, and represents a, a real kind of escalation of, you know, frankly, the on and off violence that's existed in, in Israel and the occupied territories in, in Palestine for, for decades. So one concern is just you know what we're seeing here, uh, you know, what what I, I think, um, even if uh, somewhat controversially, given historical baggage, can be uh, uh, looks awful lot like a pogrom. You know, there's there's the worry about that and what that means for the future. But there's also a real worry about how the Israeli government is handling the situation. Right. Uh, as folks may recall, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu was recently reelected uh, as the head of a deeply, deeply far right uh, government. Uh, and two of his uh, key ministers in particular um, have said highly inflammatory uh, statements uh, about what's been going on. So National Security Minister Itamar Ben-Gvir has threatened to, quote, crush the en- you know, crush enemies. Finance Minister uh, Bezalel Shmotrik uh, has argued that the Palestinian village of Hawara should be, quote, wiped out. In, in fact, I think there's a letter of 
dozens of Israeli human rights scholars who, international law scholars who <laughs> want Smotrich investigated for, uh, you know, incitement potentially under international law in, in, in this uh, situation. Uh, and, and Benjamin Netanyahu, right, whose main source of appeal is, uh, I think, his kind of political acumen, his experience and his ability to keep fractious Israeli politics together, uh, is suddenly looking just frankly a lot weaker. So, you know, with all of that, let me turn to, to you, Scott. I mean, do, do, does my kind of depressing description uh, seem right to you? Am I being, frankly, overly optimistic or, or do you have reasons for optimism? You know, what's, what's your read on what's going on? No, I think you captured a lot of the element of that this really well, uh, and there are not, I think, a lot of clear signs for optimism. I think in a lot of ways, while I think the election of Netanyahu's newest government and the composition of it has escalated and thrown a lot of fuel uh, on the trajectory towards this outcome, it's sadly probably been in the making for a while to a certain extent. We had this era throughout really like the last half of the 2000s, the last 15, 20 years, a little less than that, uh, last 10, 10, 15 years, where there was actually a very successful effort to, you know, lower levels of violence in the West Bank uh, and adjoining parts of Israel that had been a recurring problem uh, through the the intifadas and kind of a a recurring problem even in between and around those. And there were a lot of pillars of that effort. One of them was really international, particularly U.S. uh, financial assistance to Palestinian Authority. Uh, Another one was kind of support for the Palestinian Authority, some degree of autonomy, although it's a very, um, you know, limited concept. And there's lots of contention, very legitimate contention over how much actual meaningful autonomy over important issues the Palestinian Authority has, but some degree of autonomy and a high degree of cooperation, coordination between Israeli and Palestinian Authority security forces, actually. Um, That all really broke down during the Trump administration. Um, I'm not trying to put all the blame for this to the Trump administration's feet. I don't think that's that's fair by any stretch of the imagination. But because of actually some laws enacted by the US Congress relating to civil liability for terrorism, um, we saw the Palestinian Authority essentially completely cut off ties to US foreign assistance that also cut off ties to the security assistance. Well, there's been efforts to ramp it back up and start it back up since the the substantial amendment of that law, the Anti-Terrorism Clarification Act, and since the uh, entry of the Biden administration, you know, I think there's kind of limits to what can be done, especially because the Palestinian Authority is kind of in a its own crisis or approaching one. Um, you know, it is under the leadership uh, uh, Mahmoud Abbas, person who's been in charge of Palestinian authority for a very long time, but is very elderly, reportedly not in great health. There are no clear signs of succession or plans for succession. Elections, a lot of people suspect, might lead to the election of a lot of factions that are uh, maybe Hamas or Hamas affiliated or similarly problematic in other ways. Uh, or at least there's a concern that that's the sort of government that will emerge from this. And so, you know, Israel and perhaps to some extent the United States and others in the national community have been content to allow the Palestinian Authority to kind of avoid holding more elections for concern about triggering those sorts of concerns. But there's a natural time limit to how long that can be sustained. And that's the mortal life of Mahmoud Abbas, essentially. Um, right. And so that moment is coming. And I think as you see the end of this political moment coming clear, the incentives for different political factions and actors within the Palestinian Authority and to some extent within Israel as well, to coordinate with that status quo has really begun to dissolve. On top of that is real material concerns for the Palestinian Authority, you know, security forces, funding shortcomings, lots of different challenges here. The political context of, you know, the prior Netanyahu government having pursued aggressive territorial claims with the support of the Trump administration, a lot of different factors entered in here. This latest concern, though, I think the biggest concern really does come down to the Netanyahu's government ability to rein in or address this because it has lots of people, as Alan, you 
well articulated in real positions of power, including over security forces who openly buy into and support these sort of actions. We've seen this very careful line they've drawn so far saying, no, 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 settlers, we agree with you. We think you have legitimate grievances and we need to take steps to you know, crush these people. This is the actual language they use, crush these people um, who are opposing our efforts here, but you need to do it through the state. And they're essentially selling this line that we are facilitating an effort by the Israeli state's going to do these things for you so you don't have to do them yourselves. And that relates to these legal reforms that Netanyahu's coalition is trying to push through about limiting the role of the Israeli Supreme Court and of legal advisors. We've got great content on this on Lawfare for the last few weeks by uh, Mikhail Cohen and Yuval Shaney that's done a really amazing job breaking this down. And it's absolutely devastating. Um, it's a fundamental change in how the Israeli state has operated and those lines of rule of law that have really preserved it as in the eyes of many in the international community, in a liberal democracy, despite its many problems and many problematic policies. And so can an administration that's pushing these things and that has people like that in its ranks actually be realistically expected to rein in this sort of behavior? Or will those people want to do it, believe them when they say they want them to stop? I'm not sure they, they do. And it means I'm not sure how this government really works its way out of this situation very easily. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Yeah, so I want to bring it back a little bit to the specific incidents that are happening and and how that relates to the reality on the ground. Because, I mean, Scott, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that the legal structure that is still in place, at least in uh the de jure reality is is still based in part on the Oslo Accords. And so in Huara, for example, when I looked last, the arrangement in Huara was that about 38% of the land was classified as Area B under the Oslo Accords, which means that the Israeli, Israeli military is responsible for security and there is some joint administrative efforts by the Palestinian Authority and Israel. 
And the rest of it is Area C, which is controlled by an Israeli administrative authority that administers the occupied territories of the West Bank under the auspices of international humanitarian law rather than a civilian authority. And the Israeli military is also responsible exclusively for security. So that is to say that the Israeli military is fully in, in control of security matters for Huara. Um, the Palestinian Authority has like a percentage of a percentage in theory of influence over the civil administration of the city. And it's only part of the city. So I think this is important to articulate because the perpetrators of the riot that um, caused so much damage in Huara were these hundreds of settlers, as Alan was saying. Um, Those are civilians. Those are not military. The people who are responsible legally for controlling that um, security situation is the Israeli military. The legal reality on the ground as well is that Israeli settlers are subject to a different legal regime than Palestinians who, uh, who are in the occupied territories. So you're literally talking about a sort of web of different legal protections and a web of different laws to which people are held accountable. And I think that that's just important. That mess is important to realize in terms of understanding how this came about and who should be held accountable. You know, it's it's clear that it was settlers who are civilians, not members of the military, who were responsible for the violence. But there are what seem to be very credible allegations that members of the Israeli military, who again are responsible for security in Huara, um, the Palestinian Authority is not allowed to have security forces that are of that type, that, that some of them stood by while this violence was going on. So it's it's a mess. I was joking with Quinta earlier that to me, all of this goes back to the Ottoman land code of 1858, because um, earlier in my life, I spent a lot of time doing research on land law in the West Bank and how the confusion over land law and how it's developed led very directly to the debates over the nature of Israeli authority in these different areas based on how property law works. Um, if anyone is incredibly nerdy, um, I wrote a paper on this uh, that you can find on Westlaw in like, I want to say 2013 or something. But it's, you know, the, the, there is always discussion, as uh, Scott, you rightly brought up, of the broader political themes and you know, where are we in the possibility of viable conversations between a Palestinian governance authority and the Israeli government. But there is also just a reality on the ground that has such a direct impact on this that I think is less understood and hugely important. Yeah, I have to say the situation seems pretty bleak. And I've been thinking throughout all of this about uh, really interesting and, you know, sad and concerning uh, profile of Ben Gavir in The New Yorker um, by Ruth Margalit, where there is a really striking example um, of of what's happening in Israel right now, where Margalit is walking along near a a settlement with a Palestinian. um, And he essentially says that, you know, most of the violence used to come from settlers, 
And now a lot of it actually comes under the new government. A lot of it comes from members of the IDF as well. There's an incident that's described uh, where one soldier uh, essentially punches an activist in the face, uh, a Palestinian activist, and tells him, Ben Gavir will tidy up this place, you're screwed. And I was thinking while reading that of a conversation that Ben Wittes had with our Brookings colleague Natan Sachs when this government uh, came in, where Natan was essentially saying, you know, this is like giving uh, arsonist control of the fire department. That feels pretty apropos right now. I'm not even sure it's a metaphor at this point, given the fires and the violence. Um, and it does make me wonder where this is all headed, especially because, I don't know, see what you all think of this. There, there's a long history, right, of sort of conservative center-right politicians thinking that they can kind of ride the tiger of far-right demagogues, bring them into government, sort of use them politically and not get eaten alive and not lose control. And that rarely, if ever, ends well. So I'm curious what you think about that as kind of a comparison in this case. Is Netanyahu sort of attempting and failing to ride the tiger here? Or does that not really map onto the situation that we're seeing right now? I mean, it certainly looks like that to me. And, and you know, your question leads into the sort of question I wanted to ask, zooming out sort of even more, which is, you know, if we look at Israeli politics, it, is it careening towards a really profound crisis? Because not only do you have the, you know, this latest spout of violence, um, but you also have other issues that are kind of wholly internal to, to Israeli domestic politics. So here, the, uh, I think, prime example is the very controversial, quote unquote, to judicial reform bill that would basically strip the Israeli Supreme Court of a lot of its authority. And that has proven, I think, frankly, much more controversial than Netanyahu realized. It has brought out hundreds of thousands of Israelis onto the streets in protest. And so, you know, when you look at this level of domestic political unrest, then you look at a security situation in which parts of the Israeli government, and, and not just parts, but, you know, the very ministers that are responsible for it, are more interested potentially in accelerating and in flaming the tensions and in putting them down. You know, there's a real question of whether or not the Israeli political system is just about to crack up. And and it's just not clear what happens. I mean, I, I, just, I just wonder if Israel has reached this sort of tipping point where, you know, history is about to go much faster than it has before and in a very sort of unpredictable uh, direction. I, I totally agree with that. But the one thing I would add to it is that, you know, I think there's an arguable extent to which not just Israel, but the United States and a lot of the international community has kind of been riding this tiger and is losing its grip on it. You know, the main reason being that Israel has for the last several decades, you know, essentially been operating as a liberal democracy with a lot of liberal democracy institutions, principles and values with a major exception when it comes to Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza and, you know, a few other, uh, a few other exceptions around the Golan Heights, stuff like that. They're a little different, but primarily West Bank and Gaza. And, you know, it's been able to get away with this. The, the legitimizing mechanism was the idea that we were in a process towards a two-state solution. The idea was that, yes, these people basically have fundamentally less legal rights, and even though they're under our political control, but it's because they're on a trajectory to have a far more robust bundle of separate political rights as a separate political institution. That's a reality that it's, it looks far more distant 
now than it looked like, you know, back when we started really embracing that as a major US or international policy goal. And we've seen like, you know, US political views towards Israel begin to shift along these lines. The Democratic Party platform in the last presidential election noted the point that really, you know, we needed to see Israel commit to a two-state solution as otherwise, you know, kind of the status quo really begins to raise really human rights concerns if you're treating different populations in a real disparate fashion in a way that doesn't easily comport with general international legal or ethical principles, and it's not headed towards some sort of solution like that. And th- this administration in Israel has no interest in that quite expressly. In fact, they're trying to essentially, while they may keep up the nominal line of a two-state solution, they're very clearly taking steps to undermine that as a possibility implicitly, if not expressly in, in many cases. And once that goes away, it puts the whole international community in a really difficult position about how do you engage with Israel while maintaining these broader commitments. And I actually think that's a crisis moment that's coming for not just for Israel and its constitutional structure, but f- in a lot of ways for the whole legal and political structure that surrounded Israel for a lot of different countries. Well, that's a bummer. <laughs> Well, talking about legal and political structures, let us turn from the West Bank to our very own Key West and surrounds in the state of Florida here in the United States. As we have been seeing over the course of the last few weeks, last few months, really, the Republican-led legislature in Tallahassee, at the urging of Governor Ron DeSantis, uh, who is seen as a uh, likely candidate for the 2024 Republican nomination, if not a front runner, the front runner, enact a whole range of measures that certainly reflect the priorities of culture war and cultural warriors, target a lot of perceived wokeness in different aspects of education, different types of behavior, and kind of more fundamentally try and use the relationship between the state and different institutions that are affiliated with the state, but also reflect aspects of civil society ranging from universities to educational institutions to the media to most recently Disney, um, which is having its kind of elite status in regards to self-governance in Florida taken away by the state legislature as of the last few days, using these relationships to try and advance these very specific cultural values and concerns reflected in this kind of right-wing culture war perspective. Normally, a lot of these issues in terms of you know social values, um, political values are things we wouldn't really focus on. But at Lawfare, one thing we do consider in the scope of national security is the idea of relationship between governments and their institutions and the way it is used. And this certainly fits very squarely in that. Alan, I know you've been thinking a little bit about this over really for the last uh, year or two. Tell us where you think these latest developments really fit into the broader picture. Yeah, so so I, I want to be kind of careful here because I, you know, I do think it is important, you know, just because this is lawfare and not just like a general, or this is rational security, right? Just part of lawfare, not just a general kind of politics podcast. Um, to focus not on sort of the necessarily kind of substance of the political or social or cultural values that are being put forward, right? Um, but rather on what I think is is unique and uniquely troubling about some of DeSantis's at least recent um, legislative and sort of initiatives, which is their effect on civil society as a counterweight to government power. And I think that, you know, wherever you fall on, you know, what you think about critical race theory or what is called critical race theory by, you know, both sides of the political spectrum, arguably very few people actually ever describe it correctly, or, you know, how schools should or should not be teaching about issues of gender and sexuality, the way that DeSantis is implementing uh, this 
I think raises real concerns. And again, I think should raise concerns no matter where you are in the political spectrum. So I just want to take kind of a couple of examples here, right? So first, let's take let's take the example of uh, the um, higher ed, quote unquote, reforms that are coming out of uh, Florida, right? So whether or not you think, and I think there are good reasons to think this, right, that there's some degree of left-wing ideological capture at many universities, the way that DeSantis is trying to go about that, which would essentially render tenure protections meaningless, is not fundamentally about, quote unquote, politically rebalancing universities, but about making them, in a particular, the faculty that are working for them, fundamentally weaker and less able to speak out, right? This is especially true if you look at the fact that DeSantis's higher ed reform would not just weaken tenure generally, but it would outlaw specific majors and courses of study, right? So it would outlaw, you know, gender departments and sort of ethnic studies departments, uh, and therefore, disadvantage the viewpoints of a whole class of potential government critics. Another another example is DeSantis's uh, attempt to weaken the protections that the press has against defamation law or against defamation suits from uh, uh, you know, public figures. This is constitutionally protected under the famous Supreme Court case, New York Times versus Sullivan. Uh, but DeSantis is at the head of a conservative movement that is trying to pass laws that would conflict with that ruling um, by making it, again, easier for public figures to sue journalistic critics so that that law could then move through throughout the court system and hopefully be fundamentally overturned by uh, the Supreme Court, right? Again, the effect of which would be to make it harder to hold um, you know, the government to account. Um, and we could go through sort of the other laws and see how that, uh, how that also um, uh, shows up, right? Just the Disney example is Disney criticized something in uh, you know, the Florida government uh, and therefore DeSantis uh, retaliated by taking away sort of a longstanding benefit that Disney had. Now, again, I mean, I am pathologically a both sideser, right? So I want to say like you do see occasional versions of this on the sort of left side of the political spectrum. Um, you know, a few years ago, uh, New York Attorney General uh, Letitia James went after the NRA for very serious problems that the NRA was having and, you know, fraud being committed by the NRA heads uh, at, at the time. But she went beyond just trying to solve that by trying to dissolve the NRA entirely as a uh, organization. And I wrote a kind of an angry uh, lawfare post criticizing that, not because I like the NRA, I can't stand it and all of the sort of stuff it stands for, but because I think that that was profound overreach um, because it was trying to um, you know, undermine the ability of, frankly, a part of civil society that stood for the views of lots of Americans. Now, the difference, I think, is in the scale and the scope and the comprehensiveness uh, of what DeSantis is doing, right? There's nothing equivalent in that respect on the left, which is why I think it's a unique danger and worth calling out. Um, and I think it's especially dangerous because DeSantis is, um, if not the presumptive front runner, then along with Donald Trump, one of the two front runners. And if, you know, the Trump regime was um, in, you know, Ben Wittes' famous formulation, malevolence tempered by incompetence, um, I think what we're seeing from uh, as a preview of a DeSantis regime is that you might have an equal level of malevolence, but much less incompetence. And that makes me just very, very worried for the future of American politics, especially on the right. Yeah, I think the important distinction to draw here is that the American right has created a political culture where this kind of demagoguery is encouraged and rewarded. And that is just not the case on the left and the center left in the same way. So in that respect, I, I just don't think the James example is really particularly 
apropos here. I mean, what what really strikes me about DeSantis is that this this is sort of an escalating pattern that I don't really know when I would pinpoint it as as starting, but it does seem the sort of approach he's been taking toward I'll call it demagoguery and attacking institutions, um, particularly attacking institutions of higher learning, particularly attacking more vulnerable populations, most notably um, trans and gay people. It seems to have been escalating as he positions himself to run for president in 2024. And as far as I can tell, he's been kind of using that to distinguish himself politically from Trump that he is someone who focuses more on the culture war issues and has just decided to go full bore on them and appeal appeal to to voters on that basis and in that way sort of draw a line between himself and and Trump Trump being more sort of personality focused. Um, ironically, if you read coverage of DeSantis as a politician, a lot of the things that come up is that he's just like very awkward in person. Um, so so perhaps this is useful to him in drawing attention away from that. But I do think the thing that I find interesting about this is that you've started to see some pushback from other Republican politicians. I think there was a comment from Mike Pence the other day that DeSantis's efforts to kind of get rid of the special uh, benefits that Disney has was crossing the line. Um, And I do wonder if there will be sort of too, at what point it becomes too much, essentially. And part of what I mean by that is that it may never become too much for the GOP base, but the Republican Party has kind of whipped itself into this position where somehow focusing on culture war issues, focusing on education, they've convinced themselves that like this is the golden ticket to winning the 2024 election. And I actually don't think there's any evidence for that. Glenn Youngkin won in Virginia um, in the gubernatorial race. That was a weird election in a lot of ways. He did campaign on education, but I don't think that's the clear narrative. And Republicans who went out there and campaigned really heavily on culture war issues, sort of issues of trans rights, that kind of thing, in, uh, in 2020 didn't do particularly well, right? They didn't hold the Senate. They barely won the House. And so I just don't see this doesn't seem to me to be like such an obvious home run. Um, And so I find it both concerning in terms of what it says about the state of Republican politics, what it says about the state of institutions in Florida, but also it just seems like so deeply self-referential that it's actually hard for me to see like if you are not watching the Fox Extended Universe every day why you would care so much about this. Yeah, I think those are all really good points. I want to do a quick diversion to go a little meta on this because I was thinking as we were discussing this topic um for rational security and sort of along the lines of how we started, you know, is this sort of in lawfare and rational security's issue space. One thing that really occurs to me about this situation is that it feels like there's a bit of hesitation to analyze it in the context of broader conversations we're having globally about people in democracies of varying levels of functioning or with histories of various levels of democratic functioning, suddenly seeming a lot more interested in authoritarian governance structures and, and like the rise of populism in countries like Poland or Hungary, the rise of 
you know, what a lot of people are calling fascist tendencies all over the world. And I think there's, there seems to be to me a sort of hesitation to think about this situation as part of that landscape, I, I suppose, in part, because um, we are used to thinking of, you know, the United States federal government as the government of the United States. But, you know, part of our system is that states have a lot of autonomy, and I think can in, in some, some circumstances, be understood as sort of sufficiently independent and powerful to be thought of in a more global context. And the other aspect of this that really is much more directly national security related is some of the the laws and proposals that are under consideration, um, which we talk about in the domestic context of anti-immigrant, are also within the realm of how states are really responsible for creating and implementing policy and laws that Im- impact um, national security through immigration and how immigrants are treated and how immigration is is treated. And some of the proposals are really directly on that and so really do have a lot to say about the United States's treatment of immigration because of what Florida is doing on its own initiative. Yeah, so just, just to say one really quick thing about kind of Natalie's meta point about, you know, why we might be uncomfortable talking about Florida politics in this broader authoritarian frame. You know, I think there are good reasons to be to be cautious about that because, you know, you don't want to get into the habit of saying, well, any social or domestic policy or any color of culture war issue, right? And of course, you know, both sides spend a lot of time on things that fall under the quote unquote culture war, right? You don't want to get in a situation where, you know, anytime someone does something you disagree with, you say, well, that must be authoritarian because I don't like it, which is why I think it's helpful to sort of be as precise as possible with sort of what goes beyond just a garden variety. I don't like that. Or even I think that's immoral to, oh, wow, I think that's a real threat to basic democratic systems, which is why I think the framing of um, it's not just you know, something I disagree with, but it's something I disagree with paired with an attack on civil society that makes it harder for the democratic process to hold power to account. That's where I think um, that frame becomes most useful. And so I think it's really important um, when we're looking at the behavior of any politician um, to sort of, from the law, kind of quote unquote lawfare perspective, to focus on on that subset, because I think that that can push back against the tendency to sort of say, well, anything I don't like is a threat to democracy, which, which is a, a trap that one can fall into, right? for obvious reasons. I, just to clarify, I, I totally agree with that. And I, my point is that the inverse is also true, that we shouldn't be afraid to think about the extent to which this shows something interesting about democracy and people who are governed by democracies seeming more interested in authoritarian tendencies, primarily exercised through the treatment of institutions, as you're saying, Alan. We shouldn't be afraid to talk about that simply because it is manifesting itself so much in what we characterize as culture wars. Well, folks, that brings us to the end of our time together this week. But this would not be rational security if we did not bring you some object lessons to ponder over in the week to come until we are back in your podcast feeds. Alan, what do you have for us this week? So I have a really fun, really silly, but really entertaining movie. Uh, Spin Me Round has a fabulous cast led by the just endlessly charming Alison Brie, 
Um, and I sort of, she's one of these kind of, one of the sort of small list of actors that I will watch anything that she's in because she's just such a delight. Um, but as Alison Brie and it has, uh, Aubrey Plaza and a, a very, um, excellent, uh, Molly Shannon appearance. I haven't heard about her for a while. I'm not going to say too much except that it's a kind of mystery romance parody set in Italy. Um, it's really delightful. Uh, it's totally brainless and, uh, a great way to eat some popcorn on the couch after a long day. Spin me round. Quinta, what do you have for us this week? I have a holiday from the great country of Georgia, the country in Europe, not the state. It was National Hachapuri Day on February 27th. Uh, Hachapuri, if you are not familiar, is a Georgian cheese bread. I'm comfortable saying it is the best food ever invented. Um, sometimes it you, they make it like a little boat um, that's like the bread, and then there's kind of cheese and an egg in the middle. It is delicious, and apparently there is a holiday for it, which we have already missed. But if you have not consumed hachapuri recently or ever, I highly recommend that you go out and try some in honor of National Hachapuri Day. Does the holiday involve napping? Because that's the only thing you should and frankly physiologically can do after eating hachapuri. It is a delicious food, but my God, it is is soporific (laughs) in the best possible way. That's why it's such a laid back part of the world, Alan. <laughs> Everyone's just chilling yeah, out. They're all, just, out. They're, they're all just eating way too much hachapuri to just like kind of get bothered by anything. <laughs> yeah. Maybe not quite the best accurate description of that region, but I'll take <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, for my object lesson this week, I am subbing in two public service announcements hearkening back to object lessons of yesteryear. At least one. I, I think both were object lessons, but I know one was, which is that two of the best comedies in human history are now back with new chapters, both of which are getting pretty good reviews, one of which I've gotten to see one of. The first is History of the World Part 2. This is the long-awaited, by which I mean literally decades, History of the World Part 1. Alan, I think this was one of your object lessons last year. It (laughs) is out imminently on Hulu. It has been described, Rolling Stone described it today in a review I saw as Mel Brooks meets Kroll's show, meaning Nick Kroll's uh, signature show, which is an amazing combination if it comes close to that. Uh, I've been watching trailers for it. I'm extremely excited to dig into it once it comes out, uh, which I said, I can't remember the exact release date, but it's like any day now, as I recall. Maybe it even came out yesterday. Might have. So keep an eye out for that. The one that I have seen that just came out that I'm not sure is an object lesson, but I will make it one if it isn't, is the new season of Party Down. Hell Another yeah. amazing comedy from 10 years ago. Like I started rewatching the first season and it is such a 2009 show all about the recession in ways that I didn't pick up on at the time. Right down to everyone having flip phones instead of smartphones, which is phenomenal. But it is such a good comedy that's aged really, really well, if a little darkly. Um, the new season is out. At least the first episode is out now. I was able to watch it the other day. It's great and sets up a phenomenal premise for the rest of the season. I'm really excited to see. Um, so... Really, really recommend folks check out those two comedies of yesteryear and enjoy the uh, golden age that is our television moment. Natalie is our special guest. What do you have to bring us home for today? All right. Well, I have a um, sort of self-interested promotional tidbit, which is um, my object lesson is 
an excellent series by Lawfare called The Aftermath, which I just happen to be the host of, but rely extremely heavily on excellent work by my colleagues. Um, so we are currently finalizing episode six, which is the end of season one of The Aftermath. Um, if folks aren't familiar with it, it is our narrative podcast series dedicated to exploring how the government writ large reacted to and is trying to respond to January 6th. So part of our mission in it is to um, explore and explain what is often very obscure about how different aspects of the government responded, because I think especially at this point, having just uh, seen the results of the January 6th committee's work, um, it's very easy to forget everything else that other government entities did and have been doing in response. Um, And given that, you know, the event was a real attack on the structure of democracy and some of the foundations that we have always taken for granted, um, we thought it was important to look at how our democratic institutions are trying to right themselves in its aftermath. So be on the lookout for episode six coming out sometime in the next couple of weeks. If you haven't already uh, listened to previous episodes, you can find them wherever you get your podcasts. I hope you enjoy it. Now that is a plug. Well done, Natalie. Uh, way to represent. We appreciate it. <laughs> maybe maybe more. Than we, maybe we should do a better job representing our own content here on here <laughs> as well. Well, folks. For better or for worse, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Rational Security is a production of Lawfare. So be sure to visit lawfareblog.com for our show page with links with past episodes, for our written work and the written work of other Lawfare contributors, and for information on Lawfare's other phenomenal podcast series, including the aforementioned Aftermath. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at RATL Security, and be sure to leave a rating or review wherever you might be listening. Also, sign up to become a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon at patreon.com slash lawfare for an ad-free version of this podcast and other special perks. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo, and our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. We are once again edited by the wonderful Jen Patcha Howell. On behalf of my co-hosts, Alan and Quinta, and our special guest, Natalie Orpit, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Until then, goodbye. <laughs>